Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Sarah Lane Ritchie. Sarah is a scholar of science and religion and has done extensive work on psychedelics and religious experiences. You can get connected with Sarah and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, we have none other than Sarah Lane Ritchie. I'm so excited for this conversation, Sarah. Sarah, you are a scholar of science and religion, and uh, I'm all about science, even though I'm, I'm not very good at it. And I'm obviously all about religion because I have a the- theology podcast. So you're like intersecting like two of my favorite things in the world. But specifically, we're going to be talking about psychedelics. And I am so excited because I feel like I have almost no experience whatsoever, uh, both personally and just like in the topic of psychedelics and religion. So I am very, very excited about this conversation. I'm sure a lot of listeners are going to be like, wait, what in the world? This is so cool. But before we dive into that, who is Sarah Lane Ritchie to Sarah Lane Ritchie? Well, that changes every uh, month, if not every week. (laughs) I consider myself to be an explorer in Mm. the intersection or at the intersection of all the fun scientific and religious oriented disciplines. My whole career has basically been about trying to find ways to use my time and money to study the questions that keep me up at night. So everything Mm -hmm. I've ever done has been like driven by my own existential angst and the uh, enormous problems that I uh, felt that I had discovered about life when I was five. Um, And so the psychedelics topic is part of that for me. Um, I'm mostly driven, I would say, by um, questions about meaning and being an active participant in your own meaning-making processes. I am not into um, bullshitting myself. Can I swear on this podcast? I'm not into bullshitting myself. And so I've always liked to uh, surround myself by um, scholarship and thinkers and just people who have incredible lives um, who challenge me and who... um, offer me a way of like kind of pushing the boundaries of what I might think that I know or think that I want. Um, I'm very, let's see, risk averse, very experientially driven, which leads me to um, travel a lot. So I spent uh, recently seven years in Scotland. I was working at the University of Edinburgh in science and religion. And uh, I'll see what else. I've got a two-year-old, which takes up a ton of my time at the Mm -hmm. moment. And Yeah. So I'm just currently trying to find um, ever more areas of uh, fun, controversial, interesting questions that I can use uh, uh, my time exploring. 
Love it. Love it. Well, again, I want to talk about psychedelics and religion. But before I ask about like how you got involved and interested in that topic, again, you're a scholar of science and religion. And I know you grew up in the Southern Baptist world. I also grew up evangelical. Mm-hmm. I would imagine most of my listeners also grew up in that world. We were taught growing up that you don't like you know, intersect science and religion and so far that like, as long as it, it, it has to be a certain kind of science, like creationist science. Right. But yeah. I'm for, for you, how did you really get involved and interested in that topic of science and religion, especially coming out of that Southern Baptist yeah. uh, world? Right. So I, um, my first exposure to the intersection of science and religion was through Kent Hovind's creationist video series he was known as dr dino then he went to like federal prison for like tax evasion or something for a really long time checks out but i remember like even as like an eight or nine year old devouring these creationist videos about dinosaurs still walking the earth and the earth being like four thousand years old and oh so you grew up in the the the, like creationist world where dinosaurs were alive with humans because there also is the creationist world that's like actually dinosaur bones were put in the ground to test your faith so right right like there's two very different ways of thinking about that it's interesting you grew <laughs> exactly. up in that particular very world. niche very niche world we're talking about here yeah but right. i was on the particular strand uh where we were trying to say that no dinosaurs are definitely still a, like they're still walking the earth in like africa <laughs> oh. um, hanging out with the nephilim that's right yeah exactly that's right Yep, totally. So that was sort of, um, I remember being just co- totally obsessed with this conversation. I was, uh, I was intrigued with it from the beginning. Uh, when I was in high school, my family moved overseas to uh, Pakistan and then Bangladesh. And when I was oh, wow. uh, in those locations, I started going to international schools. You're like a missionary family? Sort of not really. It was like one of these tent making situations where my dad was working for an organization, but like, like a, like okay. a, a business, but um, okay. we were doing a lot of mission stuff on the side. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I was exposed to far more worldviews and ways of understanding the world in those contexts than I ever was in Northern Michigan at my Southern Baptist church. And so I got started pretty early on a sort of deconstructing pathway. And then when I was in undergrad, um, I started out in pre-med and I was just totally fascinated by all things scientific. And I got more interested in like biology and psychology. And then what happened for me, kind of the real turning point was when I started getting into psychology of religion and neuroscience of religious belief and religious experiences. Mm -hmm. So um, once I started understanding that there are actual like mechanisms and like processes involved and why and how we experience and believe everything that we experience and believe, I both saw like a challenge to my faith, which had basically disappeared by that point anyway, and also like a lot of hope because it meant that I could at least do things that might help my experience of ultimate reality, whatever that was, uh, be like enhanced and grow. Um, even if it was like through a very alternative pathway, it didn't take me where I had started from. Okay. So that's kind of your gateway into specifically science and religion. How then did you get into psychedelics and religion? Mm -hmm. Uh, I would imagine that if you were really interested in like what's going on in the mind or in the brain during religious experience Mm -hmm. and all of that psychedelics probably end up being a topic that you get interested in. Mm -hmm. So I had a few points in my academic training that were pivotal here. So when I was at, I did my MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary and 
Um, there was a science literature professor there named Wenzel van Heustein. He recently passed away, but he was incredible. And he exposed me to this whole world of neuroscience and religious experiences. And as one of my final papers for him, I, what, I basically chose to examine the legitimacy of drug-induced experiences and like looking at the way that um, substances, we say drugs, but it's like a very pejorative term. So like substances mm -hmm. have played a pivotal role in the evolutionary development of human capacities for religion and for religious belief even. So there are all sorts of anthropological theories that suggest that uh, it, like induced uh, participatory experiences of like on substances of some form form have been very important in the evolution of religions and certainly in the evolution or the development of individual um, religious leaders experiences in like religious lives. So I wrote that paper and then I went on to do a master's in science and religion in Edinburgh. And there I became fascinated by the question of like whether or not you can make yourself believe in God. And mm. I, this, that was totally autobiographical. At that point, I had basically like lost, I just didn't really believe in God and I wanted to. And so I was trying to figure out if one could make oneself believe. And what I found through that process was that while it's not really possible to choose directly what you believe, you can definitely indirectly influence what you end up believing by engaging with repetitive actions and behaviors and rituals and focusing your attention on certain things and engaging in emotionally salient experiences. And from there, I went on to do a PhD and then wrote a book called Divine Action in the Human Mind. And there I started looking at the question of whether or not or how God acts in the human mind. So if we say that God acts in the world, that God actually does stuff in the world, and we say that God actually does things in the human mind ever, even if that's just like that still soft voice or mm -hmm. that um, like that hunch, the intuition that you think God is like putting in you, um, you're saying something about the way that God interacts with physical realities. So we have neurons, we have uh, cognitive processes. And so if God is going to be doing anything in our minds, that's going to have to be mediated through our physical bodies in some way. And so I started looking at kind of the philosophical and metaphysical questions around that and also the theological approaches that people have taken throughout history in addressing this question of like how God relates to the natural world. So then after that, I started doing a postdoc and then doing uh, other work as a lecturer in Edinburgh. And um, I started becoming much more interested in the question of theologically, are we warranted and justified in becoming active participants in our own spiritual experiences? So is it wrong for us to engage with the world in ways that will affect the way that we experience God? Uh, and what I found, or what I think I found is that we already do this anyway. Like mm. anytime you go into a church and there is music or incense, there's a very particular uh, chord progression in that worship song that's going on over and over and over again for 45 minutes. The the mood lighting, the clothes. Just that even like wear, your your physical like stature or like like whether you're sitting or laying yes, prostrate exactly. or whatever. Posture. Yeah. 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 So it's very clear in the anthropology of religion and cognitive science of religion that um, what we do with our our bodies in groups in our buildings with music and smells and taste all of this affects the way that we uh, experience God. And in some ways can almost like shape what we experience, right? So if I go to uh, a Jewish synagogue, I'm very unlikely to have the same sorts of experiences that I'd have if I went to like a charismatic, like mega church. So um, I started looking into that 
And then from there, I started looking at the whole variety of what I've called spiritual technologies in transforming people's lives. So we have all these ones that feel kind of mundane, like incense and prayer in a a certain position or fasting or whatever, dancing, music. Uh, But I started to get more interested in the whole body of emerging research on psychedelics because psychedelics have been um, consistently rated as the psychedelic experiences have been consistently rated as in the top five most meaningful experiences of people's lives. And they have, they can have a dramatic effect, not only on people's long-term health and getting like free from addictions and PTSD, Mm -hmm. but they can also affect deeply the way that people understand ultimate reality, metaphysics, the relationship between Mm -hmm. oneself and the world. And people have incredibly intense and rich spiritual experiences that after the experience go on to uh, change their whole lives. So that was sort of how I arrived at psychedelics as being particularly interesting. And it was just kind of like this fortuitous moment because the whole philosophical and theological and scientific world was blowing up with psychedelic research at the same time that I got interested in it. I definitely want to talk later on about the theological formation that happens when people use psychedelics. But we need to talk more because... I got to say, so my I just wrote my thesis uh, several months ago, graduated with my MA, and my whole thesis was about embodiment, specifically what's happening in our bodies during religious experiences. And then the last half of my thesis, I talk about uh, sort of a mini brief systematic theology of the theological conclusions we can make based on the science that we are learning about what's happening in our bodies mm-hmm. during religious experiences. And so I'm really interested in that like kind of constructive theological uh, yeah. conclusions that you can make out of uh, what's what we're learning from science. And I'm just like, like you probably know way more about the science stuff than I have even like dived into the research, even for my thesis. And so like, I just want to pick your brain all about that because there's probably so much there. Yeah. So, I mean, where, where do you want to start? Um, like about the mechanisms involved or like well, the, what so, substances? Well, I, I mean, I can talk about like what I found in, in some of my yeah. research. So, for example, one of the things in the... I my assumption is that I'm probably one of the first people to make this connection. I, I guess I didn't find any other research that made this connection. But one of the things I learned from one piece of research was about the insula cortex in our brains and specifically the insula cortex being this processing center in our brains about what's happening in our external experiences. So my I'm sitting right now. My body is experiencing that sitting and the insula cortex is the part of our brain that's processing that to know, oh, you are sitting and this is what you're doing in this. And what I found, so that's one of the things I learned about the insula cortex. One of the other pieces completely, uh, compl- like it was a complete different like study, was that one of the most activated parts of our brains during a religious experience specifically is our insula cortex. So I started making these conclusions. Well, if the the part of our brain that processes our bodily experiences is also the most activated part of our brain during religious experiences, there must be then some sort of embodied component to religious experience. And that might not necessarily be like a profound revelation, but the science is there to back it up, which I think is interesting. But what I find more interesting then is if that's true, then there are ways that we probably should think about God. And certainly within Christianity, there are ways that have been thought about God and Mm -hmm. salvation and sin and so on and so forth that I think are just probably flat out wrong if you 
recognize the fact that our bodily experiences absolutely play a critical role in our religious experience. Uh, and that's why part of the reason why I'm so interested in process thought, because I happen to think that process thought, uh, a lot of it has theological conclusions that I think align really well with this fundamental truth that our bodies play a critical role in our religious experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but like that for me has been the conclusion and sometimes the starting point for what I do as well, that our God world relationship really matters. Um, so I'm, I, I operate mostly in the panentheist uh, space, but the kind of the core intuition I think is borne out by the sciences in some ways as well, is that we have to get rid of all the dualisms, dualisms between mind right. and body, dualisms between God and world. And right. that which so uh, much of Christian theology is predicated on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at least in the strands that most of us are most familiar with. And uh, as soon as like the, mo- the, the, the more closely you can integrate your theology and your understanding of the natural world, the better off we're going to be and the better understanding we're going to have of ourselves in relationship to reality. And yeah, so I totally agree with you that your metaphysics really matters here. And the, yeah, so for me, like what what has been surprising to me is that as we develop a more fine-grained understanding of what is happening in different sorts of religious experiences, we're finding that different things are happening in the brain depending on the context, depending on whether or not a substance is involved, and depending on the focus of the person's attention. And we're getting this picture that is incredibly complex. It cannot be reduced to like a God spot in the brain. But what it is showing us is that there we can learn very important things about the way that our theology affects our minds and our bodies, the way that our minds affect our theology. For example, uh, there's this really famous study about um, nuns who are praying in an MRI machine. And what is fascinating is that these nuns, um, their brains, as they're praying to God in a personal relational way, their brains are like lighting up and to put it crudely, lighting up in a way that suggests they're actually um, engaging with a per- another person physically in the room, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, whether or not it's actually true, your brain is understanding an intercessory prayer. Your brain is understanding God as a person, like physically with you. And that's a powerful insight. Whether or not it's true is a different story, but it is like important to realize that the sciences can shed light on the physical reality, the how our brains are experiencing God, um, and that can um, that probably should affect the way that we that we uh, um, talk about religious practices, um, but also that we talk about our theology. And with psychedelics in particular, we're starting to see the way there. So there are many different theories about why psychedelics produce the experiences that they do. So why are these experiences, why do they allow such a uh, a seemingly transformative space for rapid change in the way that you understand reality after those experiences? Um, there are a bunch of theories for this. One of the leading ones right now comes out of, um, uh, comes from a researcher named Robin Carhart Harris at uh, Imperial College London. He's got a whole psychedelics research center there. I was actually a participant in one of his trials, Priscilla Simon. Mm. And so he talks about what he has called the entropic brain thesis. And the idea here is that our brains are constantly trying to like be efficient and to basically make sense of the world. And what happens is that we kind of get into ruts 
uh, actually literally your neurons like get into ruts so that your brain processes the world in the same way all the time. Another part of this is like the default mode um, network. You may have heard the D about the DMN. It's a sort of like mm -hmm. low grade anxiety that we're always experiencing about what do I need to do? What do I need to do? That kind of thing. Like your DMN is often like very highly activated. And so Ramakar Harris has this theory, and it seems to be borne out in some part by uh, emerging evidence that on psychedelics, the entropy in your brain, so sort of like the level of um, chaos or the undetermined nature of your brain goes up. So you have this sort of counterintuitive thing where your the psychedelics treatments like allow your brain to basically get out of the rut it's, it's in and more things become like, neur like neurally possible for you. So your, it's basically like a, your brain is like a snow globe that gets shaken on psychedelics. And mm -hmm. until all of that little snow, those snow bits like settle, you have a lot of opportunity. Your brain has a lot of opportunity to give you experiences you wouldn't be able to have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in Eastern cultures where a meditation practice, like a very intense, robust meditation practice is a very important part of people's cultures and lives they can reach some of the same states that people on psychedelics tend to. Like you can do the same sort of thing. Like you can um, um, achieve that sort of um, blue sky cognitive space um, through other modes. But what we just know is that psychedelics are extremely effective and extremely fast. I feel like I'm getting like way off of like my actual questions. But one of the things that I found really interesting in um there was a documentary on Netflix that came out a couple years ago about fungi. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the things that I don't know why, but I just made this connection specifically when it comes to fungi that are used for psychedelics is that the actual structure of fungi, especially those that are underground and mm -hmm. the connections, uh, the sort of my, what are they, mycelin um, networks that they form are really similar. They, they just structurally look similar to yeah. the, the neural connections that we have within our brains. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, d does the physical structure of like the similarity between mm -hmm. these fungi, myocellin um, networks and the networks that are, that are the structures of the networks in our brain. Is there any like thing that's going on there? Yeah. I just find that really interesting. Yeah. There's this book you should read. It's called Underland. It's okay. uh, by like Robert Mix something, I think. Anyway, it's a great book. It's talking about, the mushroom, the fungi stuff. Uh, it's really great. But yeah, there is an interesting structural similarity between neuronal networks and mycelium. And I think, so my hunch here, and I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm not, a, I'm not a mycologist. So I don't, I, 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 I don't want to make too many like grand pronouncements here, but my sense is that the structures, because the structures are maximized to allow the most connections, the most possibilities for new connections, that's, probably why fungi are so fascinating and so is the brain um because it's not like you have so in, in the brain it's not like you have like one neuron that kind of hooks on to another neuron you have like billions of neurons that are all hooked up at multiple points to other right. neurons right so it's like the it's it's an unimaginably complex system of um connections that are possible right. uh and fungi are, are similar all those little strands underground hooking up together in similar ways yeah it's unbelievable. All right. Let's talk again specifically about psychedelics. Psychedelics have been a part of human history for a very long time. I don't really want to get too much into like the stone ape theory. I don't have no idea if, how into that you are. But but even I would even maybe make the argument before the stone ape theory, whenever that happened, I would argue that religion even predates that. 
th- yeah. that moment. And certainly psychedelics have been a part of religion since the very beginning of the emergence of religion. Can you talk about kind of the key moments throughout the historical timeline of religion and psychedelics, how they've been used? Uh, And so, yeah, take us from like the very beginning to where we're at now and some of those key historical moments. And, you know. So I'm definitely not a minutes. historian, so I'm not <laughs> going to be able to give you like a historical, a comprehensive historical overview. Um, but what I will say, and there are, so there's so many different theories on this. There are so many different takes on it. And there's a ton of controversy about every anthropological claim that is made. But what does seem to be the case is that humans throughout history, actually before humans were biological humans, before that, we were engaging in at least proto-religious behavior. And more importantly for our conversation, there's all kinds of great evidence that we um, have been having altered states of consciousness for as long as we've been human. There's all this fascinating anthropological and archaeological evidence from cave art. It's very fascinating. Um, I mean, of course, it's very hard to find evidence of cultures that existed so far long ago, but um, we see evidence of people trying to commemorate intense altered states of consciousness that they've had, like otherworldly liminal space kind of experiences on cave arts in France and other places. There's uh, great textual evidence that's, you know, basically from as long as people could like write or pass on oral history that um, religious leaders, shamans, and, and just like people who became known as religious leaders were having powerful altered states of consciousness experiences. And there's tons of great evidence that um, substances, not just psychedelics, but substances in general were a big part of inducing those altered states of consciousness. There's been some interesting work. I don't know how credible it is, but there's some interesting work, some biblical scholars who have been doing some interesting textual analyses of the possibility of certain words in the Hebrew Bible and also the New Testament being translated in such a way that would suggest that substances, psychedelic substances are being used in communities that are now discussed in scripture. I mean, I hear sometimes people talk about like the the burning bush uh, narrative and that actually being like a, maybe a psychedelic experience. Right. And so that's another level is that you can read a lot of the experiences you read. I mean, you read some of, you read revelations, (laughs) like you read some of the experiences that are written down in scripture and it would not be surprising if some of these were occurring in uh, an altered state of consciousness that was induced by a substance. Again, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I don't want to speak about that authoritatively. But there's also, um, again, archaeological evidence suggesting that in early Christian history, psychedelics could have been used. Again, all this is very speculative, but I think this is a book called like The Immortality Key. Anything called The Immortality Key, like I am very likely to be super skeptical of but some people have said that there's some credibility there yeah so i think what we can say for sure is that people have been having altered states of consciousness that we would call religious experiences for all of human history and that they are very likely to have played an important part in the evolution of religion and that they probably often involve substances of some kind and we know that psychedelic substances have existed in various forms throughout the world right so now we're at a point in history where we can actually test some of these experiences uh, with psychedelics scientifically. So what happens in the brain when one uses psychedelics during a religious experience or ritual? And how mm-hmm. does it how how does what is happening in their brain compare to people who are doing maybe the same exact ritual or experience, but are not on psychedelics? Right. 
Well, this, so you're talking about like an in the field sort of uh, experiment um, that actually has been done. The Good Friday experiments happened, uh, I think back in the 50s, I think, 60s, I think. And it was a, basically researchers uh, basically gave, I don't know if it's LSD or psilocybin to um, uh, seminary students who are going to be engaging in like Good Friday services at the church. And then like, they gave half of them like- Why, why didn't I get to do this in seminary? I know. No, they replicated it recently and get the same sorts of results. It's amazing. We're at um, Pr- what, Princeton or something? Like, come on, um, don't waste it, it on those Princeton students. I don't think it was Princeton, but I think it was one of the Ivies, maybe in like Johns Hopkins. I don't remember, but like this is easily Googleable. But <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure, uh, psychedelics, when used in the context of re- religious communities and rituals, are extremely influential in creating a, a religious experience. So, what we're getting around to here, we're kind of circling around, is the importance of set and setting. So, anyone who's heard about psychedelics in any detail knows about the importance of set and setting. Basically, what that means is that your environment, your context, sort of the physical cues around you, whether or not you feel safe, who's around you, and your setting, or sorry, your your setting is the context, and your set is sort of like your mental orientation. Like, what is your intention here? What are you hoping for? What are you focused on? And then also as part of the setting uh, and the set would be sort of like your background religious information and your background religious hopes and your background religious trauma, all of that will be informing whatever happens to you Mm -hmm. on the psychedelics, right? So again, like if I were to do psychedelics, I would not, almost certainly I would not have um, an experience of meeting the prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. It'd be much more likely that I would meet uh, a figure from the Christian story, because that's the context in which I come from. Right. And that's been like the focus of all of my hopes and my prayers and my kind of religious relig- rituals. Yeah, and, you get to meet experience. James Dobson or some somebody. That would be a, what we call a bad trip. But yes. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So set and setting have a drastic influence on what you experience on, um, on psychedelics. Um, not all people who have, or who take psychedelics have what they would report as religious experiences. Um, But the important thing here is that those for whom the experiences are the most transformative and have the longest good term, uh, longest term good effects on their health and overall psychological well-being, those are the people who tend to report a religious or mystical dimension to their experiences. So like the current wave of research right now is actually on why does it seem that re- particularly religious psychedelic experiences are the ones that are the most effective in mm. treating or curing uh, ADHD or not ADHD, um, uh, PTSD and addictions of various forms and depression? Like, why is it the spiritual mystical quality of them that makes them so powerful? So it's sort of like it's not just the drug doing it; it's also what you're bringing to the table, and that is something that researchers across disciplines right now are analyzing. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. 
Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. And I think this like dovetails into other questions around this too, but is there actually something maybe transcendent, if you will, happening? Is it, or is it just your, mm-hmm. your brain, uh, you know, the brain chemistry doing a thing while you're having these psychedelic experiences that are transformative? Or is there something even beyond that? If you, mm-hmm. again, I, I feel like I'm using a lot of like maybe dualistic language there, but is there yeah. something kind of beyond or transcendent to that that's actually happening to make yeah. these experiences so yeah. transformative? Right, right. So this is the big divine action question and the big causation question, right? So most people are a lot of people who are resistant to psychedelics being used in religious contexts um, or even just in normal contexts. Their concern is that a religious experience that is induced by psychedelics cannot be authentic, right? So it's not authentic because you played a part in causing it. So then you start digging deeper on that question and you're like, well, okay, what about experiences that don't involve psychedelics that you deem to be uh, religious, right? So let's say you go to, um, you go on a retreat and you have an experience one night uh, in the worship service. I would ask you what caused that? And you would say, God, I'm like, okay. So if you uh, changed the music, you took out the music. If you removed all the other people from the room, if I gave you like four cups of coffee instead of no coffee, if I, uh, gave you a cheeseburger right before instead of you fasting for 12 hours. If uh, you were made to read like comics instead of reading scripture, would you have had the experience? Um, even if you wanted to, they would say, uh, obviously not. Um, and I would say, well, why? And they would say, well, those other things that you just took away from me were actually having a big part of the experience. I'm like, oh, why? Mm. And so you keep doing that. You dig, dig down and you realize, you can usually get someone to realize pretty quickly that your brain and your context, your physical environment, your body, how your body is feeling, all of those are always going to be involved in every experience that you have. Even if a, an experience is directly caused in an interventionist way by a supernatural god it is still going to be mediated through your brain your brain would still demonstrate a very uh predictable pattern of activity if we put you in an fmri machine that is just the case now you can say that god caused your brain to do that um but it is also the case that you probably wouldn't have had that experience if we had changed your context and changed Mm. your uh your, your your sort of like mental frame of mind your emotions, if your emotions were different, if we didn't have a GCD chord progression going on repetitively in the background, like there's every chance that you would have, would not have had that experience. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, I find it that it's usually easy to get people to the point of saying, at the very least, all religious experiences are mediated by our physical bodies. So then the larger question becomes, um, well, okay, but if you're playing an active role in that, it just so people want to say there's something qualitatively different about taking a pill and then 45 minutes later you have an experience versus like showing up at a church that's sort of like traditionally contextualized uh, and there's some sort of accountability structure um, and trusting that God will show up. I would say there's nothing different in there's nothing fundamentally different between those two things. You're actively involved in both of those. You're making choices about wh- who you're going to surround yourself with in your environment in either case, but 
if we want to zoom out one level, and this is what my book was about, like, you got to look at your God world model. So if you have a strong separation between God and the world, and like on one hand, on one side, you have the human person and on the other side, you have God, you have to figure out a way to get God into your mind and God causes a religious experience. Okay. That's most people's kind of understanding of like how religious experiences like happen. Like God just like zapped me and it happened. But if you have a different God world model in which that could be processed or panentheistic in which there is no strict, clear separation between where I stop and where God begins. And it's not, I'm not saying pantheism. I'm saying that in some way, um, humans are always existing within God in some very meaningful way that does not reduce God to nature, but is inclusive of humans within whatever ultimate reality is. If you have a God world model like that, then you have a lot more space to understand what Phil Clayton calls the divine lure, right? Mm -hmm. So the sort of a sort of active working in and with the processes of what we would call the natural world, because there's no way to remove the natural world from God anyway. So that's a very long answer to a very short question. But um, I would say your so your theology matters here and your metaphysics matter. Well, kind of along those lines, then, has there been like any study around people who are taking psychedelics during religious experiences and then articulating the experiences that they have and then whatever the theological conclusions they have out of that? Because, again, I would find it really difficult that if somebody has these really profound religious experiences on psychedelics, that they would maybe articulate a God world worldview or metaphysics that is similar to classical theism or right right like that that's where it's like it it does seem like if you're going to have these really powerful experiences there probably are very similar theological conclusions that you would make based on these experiences and i'm curious do you is there any research around that or do you have any thoughts around what those theological conclusions typically are Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so to put a finer point on on um the perhaps problem here is that, well, two, two problems actually. So one is um, if people are like repeatedly having psychedelic experiences that give them experiences of a God that we have reason to reject for other reasons, that's a problem. Right. And a related issue is if people are having experiences on psychedelics that are so fundamentally different from each other that they could not all possibly be even remotely true, if there's no coherence or no consistency amongst their content or what they do in people's lives, then we shouldn't think of them as being valid in some way. Mm. Um, they're just useful fictions at that point. And so there is there, I don't have it in front of me, but the, a, a, like a meta study has actually recently come out in the last year or two um, that looks at this. So what is happening to people's religious beliefs after psychedelic experiences? Um, no, people are not becoming classical theists. <laughs> if, if, if anything, if anything, people are becoming more panentheistic or process. I mean, so basically you see a move away from dualisms. You see sort of an emphasis on the unity of all things. Uh, there is an emphasis on God as loving, like love being the primary dominant phenomenological experience that people have. 
And there's a ton of variation as well. So it's not the case. Everybody has the same sorts of experiences. And we wouldn't expect that to be the case because people do bring their own cultural baggage, right? right. Um, to 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 the scene. But to the extent that people's experiences seem ineffable, not able to be put into words and transformative and overwhelming, they tend to be things that divide or that um dissolve boundaries, right? So the experiences, the words they try to put to uh, ultimate reality and the experiences that they have they all like grasp for language that describes a dissolution of the rigid boundaries that they would have had before a, a, a boundary between oneself and the world between god and oneself and um that's something i don't advertise to the classical theists because i don't want them to be afraid of psychedelics <laughs> well you can advertise it on this podcast yeah. i would be really curious to see like some sort of study or some sort of history around like early ancient religions and their use of psychedelics and the religious and theological beliefs that those religions had, uh, specifically around what they believed about God. Mm -hmm. And then you have this emergence of religions that mostly are not using psychedelics. I think Christianity more or less is one of those Mm -hmm. religions. And Mm -hmm. you see a lot of Christian theology then throughout Christian history have a more or less classical theist understanding of God in the world, mm-hmm. right? But now you also see, again, like a lot of Christians are just, you know, even spiritual and not religious people have these psychedelic experiences. And they then, again, have a more panentheist or pantheist mm-hmm. or process understanding of God in the world. And so it'd be really interesting to see like how psychedelics throughout history have shaped mm-hmm. religious beliefs within religions. Uh, and uh, yeah, there does seem to, from my very, very uh, novice mm-hmm. understanding, there does seem to be kind of these similarities or coherence around mm-hmm. what those religious beliefs and theological beliefs are with the influence of psychedelics yeah. in their religion. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> totally anecdotal here, but I've noticed as well, like a sort of existential openness that like people who grew up in like the Jesus people, like the hippie Jesus movement, mm-hmm. uh, and like the 60s and 70s, like the way that they understand God is very different from the way they're under kids who grew up in like Baptist churches, then went right. on to understand God. And those people yeah. had often had lots of psychedelic experiences before they became um, sort of anathema um, and before they like got saved and the, the thing is with these experiences is it changes you so like people who have once had these experiences it sticks with the insights you have in those experiences stick with you like sometimes for the rest of your life mm. so my dad is my, my dad is a perfect example of this right so like I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, uh, but my dad had also had all sorts of psychedelic experiences. And I have to say, I think it impacted sort of his openness and the, his fluidity in thinking about the nature of God and what, and, and, and his sort of like in ways that are hard to put into words, you know, there's a sort of like, I don't want to say a piece, but some sort of sense of connectedness to the world that, that is interesting to know. Uh, and you can probably, you can probably trace throughout history, the way that, um, that, 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 um, those trends have happened. That definitely, yeah, that, that totally resonates. We've talked about other people and just in general, mm-hmm. what people's religious and theological beliefs are from their psychedelic experiences. I'm curious for you. I mean, you've certainly had your share fair share of psychedelic experiences. How have those experiences shaped your own theology to what it is right now? Well, my experiences, I've been pretty, I've had a lot of legal experiences. Let's just say I've had, I've had, uh, 
um, I've been I've been fortunate enough to have legal experiences with psychedelics, and that has enabled me to talk about them publicly. Right. So I was in um, a study in Imperial College London on psilocybin, high dose psilocybin experience, um, and that was one that was like very fascinating um, because it wasn't what I wanted. Uh, and I always want to talk about this because it's important to, for people to know that a good trip or a transformative trip is not one that just like makes you fall in love with Jesus in exactly the way that you want to or something <laughs> like what people call bad trips are usually just challenging trips you need to then process and work through. So like, I'm someone I've talked about this in other podcasts, but like, I'm somebody who has never found it easy to believe in God. I have never experienced the reality and the presence of God in ways that other people seem to very naturally and easily. Mm -hmm. um, and I have had enough psychological training to be extremely skeptical about our own needs and reasons for believing in God. And so I have always just had a hard time uh, experiencing what other people experience and legitimizing the things that I have experienced. So that has resulted for me throughout my life in a sense of profound disconnection between myself and God and between if there is a God and between myself and the world. And so like psilocybin was amazing for me because, but also terrifying for me because um, there was a huge part of this one experience for me that was basically just me being drowned in the consumerism and the chaos of my life or mm. of like our society or whatever. I felt the most despairing I have ever felt on this trip. It was horrible. I never want to do it again. But then as the trip went on, I had a, this incredibly unexpected, surprising and nurturing experience where I was like being held in the arms of what I experienced to be like a community of African women who were dancing this beautiful dance and they were like birthing the world into existence. They were like singing the world into existence and they were like inviting me into this. And it was a very feminine, very earthy, very hard. It's really hard to describe what it was like, but it was like, I was being invited into this thing that my fragility and my brittleness was not allowing me to participate in. Right. This as a sort of like a communal involvement of, uh, that was being held out to me as an invitation to sort of like join the dance, the cosmic dance and to mm -hmm. sort of, um, let go of like the self-consciousness and sort of the, um, the, 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 the boundaries that I had been putting up between myself and ultimate reality and myself and other, um, people, and I think I would say that it absolutely changed the existential salience of what I would already have said I kind of agreed with theologically anyway is some sort of panentheism. But I had what was also interesting is that um, I've had experiences, actually with that experience, I had an experience directly after that where I... So, so one thing, but just to back up one second, like one thing like, that people, a lot of times people don't know about psychedelic experiences is that you're in a very raw state for the days after you have an experience. Mm. Um, your brain is still, it's like that shaken snow globe still. It's not um, settled back into like routine or patterns yet. And so you're still quite volatile or still quite malleable in the days afterwards. And so a really profound changes can happen uh, depending on the processing and the uh, conversations that you have, the music you listen to, um, and the days following a psychedelic experience. And um, I had felt in that experience um, that, like, while there was 
a sort of profound invitation being issued to me, there was also so much just despair in the world. And in the days after it, I had, I don't know how this happened, but I had gone down some crazy Google rabbit trail about the Holocaust. Oh boy. Which is, I know, I know. And I had come across a couple pictures of women who were about to be executed and they were naked and they were holding their babies. And all these people were waiting, knowing they were about to be executed. And I know these pictures exist. There's so many of them, but there are a couple in particular that I, in the days after this experience, just gripped me and broke me. And I sobbed for days. And it was like, I have a two-year-old. So it was just like, I was trying so hard to reconcile myself to the reality that whatever the truth about the ultimate reality is, it has to accommodate that shit like this happens. And that Mm. it was like, I cannot understand how the world could both be this terrible and also be good enough to give us a sense of how terrible it is, right? That we would know that that we would be able to recognize and respond empathically to the pain in the world and also have this sort of transcendent desire for connection and beauty and love and joy and creativity that all of these things could be true about the world. And I kind of felt like I was losing my mind for, for a few days. I was like, I cannot stop crying because of how much pain the world is in how much pain I've experienced in my own life. And yet we are somehow creatures. The world is somehow ripe with um, all these other things that are undeniably good. So, and of course there are whole theological debates about all of this. So that extended experience for me was incredibly transformative and it still hasn't left me. You said at the beginning that you kind of went into all of this interest because you were curious, like, can you, make yourself kind of believe in God Mm -hmm. and like is are there any examples of you know people who don't believe in God have Mm -hmm. these psychedelic experiences and afterwards are like well maybe there is a God Mm -hmm. uh and and again I I think we both probably would agree that more or less it if that does happen Mm -hmm. that it more or less is going to be some sort of panentheistic uh, mm-hmm. or pantheistic uh, articulation of that God. But I, I'm curious, like, are there examples of people that go into this not believing in God and come out of it believing in God? And what does that say about psychedelics? And what does that say about God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So the uh, there have, yes, there, there are plenty of people who come out um, and would say that they believe Actually, often they don't use the word God because they associate it with like classical Western theism. Right, right. Um, but those those who have a more nuanced understanding of God, yeah. And certainly what we see is that people who would say that they're atheists, oftentimes their atheism is softened, right? So they might use a lot of qualifiers afterwards when they say they don't believe in God, but they would say something like, but I believe that the universe is like ripe with potential and meaning and intrinsically valuable all the way down and somehow has some sort of teleology built into it. So it's like they, they're they so sort of... Congratulations, you're whitehead now. <laughs> I know, exactly. So most of us would recognize their atheism as something that we could also sign up to as theologically oriented people. So yeah, so there are definitely metaphysical changes that that happen for people. But I think what is interesting is that people see how ridiculous most of their lives are in these experiences and they see how their culture and their communities and their histories have constrained what they experience to be true right so you um, can kind of see through a lot of things you couldn't see through before you see how contingent in particular your own like space is in the world and you can see that though this is the I think the most profound insight I've had on psychedelics has been that 
there is another way for me to be. Like I can experience the world differently than I have in the past. It is possible. And the psychedelics will do that for you. Like at the very least, you will experience that it is totally possible for you to experience the world differently. And so that can be immensely freeing for people because you 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 get this flexibility then to explore other options. Um, and then you can combine it with other resources, right? So you have this raw experience and then you can take it and can blend it with your theological frameworks or your community. Um, for me, philosophy of religion has actually been really helpful. There's a great philosopher named Andrew Chagnell who talks about liturgical philosophy of religion. And he focuses on hope and he he, he tries to create space for pra- like liturgically practicing like a faith light or a hope that is sort of bordering on something that you don't quite believe in, but you want to believe in. And he sort of gives like a philosophical justification for throwing yourself into the processes of rituals and faith, even if you can't like sign up to all this stuff in the right way. And so you can kind of like blend the resources from theology or philosophy, your existing communities of people that you value uh, and combine that with sort of like the raw insights and intuitions that you get from the psychedelic experiences. Love that. Uh, Second and last question. How do you hope your work with psychedelics and religion inspires and liberates people who might engage with your work, whether they're reading Mm -hmm. it or whatever else? Maybe maybe they're like inspired to Um, take a a psychedelic themselves. (laughs) Well, again, I don't promote illegal use of drugs, Um, (laughs) but I am also very enthusiastic about the possibilities for the legalization of drugs. Um, so that's like another conversation, but if you find yourself in a study like I did, um, I would encourage you to participate in such a thing. Um, because at the very least, you're going to have an experience of a new way to be you. That is a gift. Most of us really struggle to have experiences of ourselves as ourselves, but in a different key in a different tone. And it is a, um, a sort of, um, it's a, it's a, it's a profound gift to be able to sort of see what is possible for you. Even if it's something that you don't want to eat, you know, you don't want to do it every week or something, but like, you can see that there, you can see a different version of yourself and a different version of reality. Uh, and on these experiences, those things are experienced as true. And so you can just sort of, it's, it, it's enlightening. It truly is enlightening. Even if you don't, even, even if upon reflection, you don't agree with all sort of like the details of what you experience. Also, we haven't addressed at all the psycholo- the scientific research on the profound um, health and psychological benefits that psychedelic mm-hmm. experiences mm-hmm. have on people. So you take away the religious dimension or sort of like the religious hopes that you might have for an experience. They are remarkably effective for treating some of the most treatment resistant mental illnesses that we have. And for that reason alone, um, I think that it is a very powerful treatment modality that you're not going to see going away anytime soon. Yeah, but at the but at root, I think I would say that um, psychedelic experiences give firsthand insight into what some of the most profound religious leaders and writers have written and spoken about for thousands of years, and it gives some access to experiences that can then change the way you live your life. It can change the way that you see the world, but can also change the way that you go about theologizing or engaging in rituals, communal practices, um, the way you treat your body. Um, there are um, some community building and potentially life-saving effects that can come from uh, responsible engagement with psychedelics. Love it. Love it. Last question, Sarah. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? 
Um, you can find me at Twitter on Twitter at S Lane Richie. Uh, Facebook, you can find me on Facebook, Sarah Lane Richie. Uh, I think I'm on, yeah, I'm on Instagram, but it's mostly just pictures of my kid. And yeah, those are the easiest ways. If you just Google me, you'll find some email somewhere. Lovely, lovely. Sarah, this has been one of my favorite conversations. It's just so interesting to me. And uh, yeah, I, I just find all of this to be really, really powerful, really, really inspiring, very, very liberating. And uh, yeah, I'm really hopeful that this, uh, you know, gives people permission to you know, maybe explore with or without psychedelics, their own theology and um, and why they believe what they believe and and how profound some of these experiences still can be in their lives, um, even if they've had traumatic religious experiences prior. So yeah. thank you so uh-huh. much for chatting a little bit more about uh, what you do in the world and about psychedelics and religion. Anytime. It was a delight. If you'd like to connect with Sarah and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>